yeah, these like the people in the book, right? They range from like bare knuckle boxers to bodybuilders to like people who do flesh hook suspension and porn stars. But I call them the natural born leg jigglers because without fail, when I met them their or interviewed them on Zoom, whatever it was, yeah, their leg would be going and so just so does mine. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, they've just they found really productive ways of dealing with this kind of natural agitation or restlessness. Hey guys, welcome to All Things Taboo with Karen Taylor. I am here today with an amazing woman. Her name is Jenny Valentish. She is a journalist uh, for The Guardian, The Age, The ABC. She's also the author of four books, um, Your Mother Would Be Proud, Cherry Bomb, Women of Substances, an Addiction Memoir, and her fourth book, Everything Harder Than Everyone Else, is just phenomenal. I've just started reading it. Um, thank you so much. It is amazing. It is interviews with all, all different people from all different walks of the world who just do everything harder than everyone else and push themselves. Every word is like jumping off the page to me. It's beautifully written. Um, I can't put it down when I have the time to read it. Um, it is amazing. Congratulations. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Karen. I can't wait to get stuck into this because we've got so much in common. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. (laughs) It's so ridiculous. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. And tell me, I just want to know, I want to know everything about you. (laughs) Just tell me everything about you. (laughs) That's no problem. I've written a memoir. I'm quite happy to air my dirty laundry. That's what we're here for. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I live for it these days. I just live for people's dirty laundry. (laughs) Yeah, just that kind of radical honesty that makes some people so uncomfortable. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Tell me about you. So tell me about your story. So you have a history with addiction. Yeah, yeah. So that started really young. Um, At the moment I discovered alcohol at 13, I was drinking it every day after school, just siphoning off my dad's supply, but on my own, you know, I wasn't doing it like, yeah, let's let's go and drink some crumbs a month in the bushes. You know, I was always alone and always neat, neat and as strong as possible. And um. I was fascinated with uh, the, the idea that you could consume something and then change. Like I couldn't get my head around that. So when I say change, I obviously mean get impaired. But to me, it was like this whole Alice in Wonderland thing of, wow, you can actually eat or drink something and then you are not yourself. And that was just so compelling for someone who was really quite sort of depressed and hated themselves at that age. So even though you know, like downing neat spirits very quickly often wouldn't help the depression after the initial, woo! Um, I was still fascinated by the fact that you could do that. Even now, like if I walk past a bottle shop or something, you know, it's this feeling of, you know, you could actually walk in there and change. You know, it blows my mind. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was present very early on, this kind of whole escapism thing. And... um, I, I just basically had a real hunger for learning about drug use. I read, you know, all the classic books about drugs, all the kind of, you know, beat authors and your Hunter S. Thompson's and Go Ask Alice and all those kind of books. And so um, I even used to go to the library and just actually get books out that, that were literally about drugs. Yeah. Um, you know, to, to explain what they were to people. And I would just be reading them hungrily, like before I could get hold of any, 
drugs. I'd be reading about them going, okay, so there's uppers, there's downers, there's psychedelics. You know, it was, um, it was like this whole world opening up in front of me. And often, you know, the reality was a bit more disappointing than I imagined, but I did sort of progress through them all as quickly as possible. And I always wanted to be the first to do it as well. So that, you know, my latest book has the title, Everything Harder Than Everyone Else, but that kind of mentality dates back to me being a teenager. Mm. And I'm sort of drawn to people who have that similar mentality, whether it's in sport or whatever it is, you know, it's um, mm. that kind of that kind of egotistical bravado. I love it. I love, I just, um, in chapter one, um, you're interviewing um, an ultra, ultra marathon. Yeah. What's it? Charlie Engel. Charlie Engel. Um, I really resonated with the bit where he says about, um, I just, there's so many bits. I'm like, I was reading this for my friend, the bit about the ego where he's, um, where he said that he, um, you know, the ego, like he really admits the ego is involved. Um, and he said like, you know, I don't want to be normal. Like it's just, mm. yeah, it's just incredible. Cause I've not really ever thought about it like that, where it's like, I want to be the person who does, you know, the, the weirdest thing for the first time or the craziest thing for the first time. You know, he said marathons were just becoming a thing that anybody could do. Like, and then he was like, but I don't want to be like that. I want to, I want it to be like next level. Like tell people that I'm going running for seven days across a desert. Um, you know, I was just like, yes, it's so true. Yes. It's like, I don't want to do be, it. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be doing something that just everybody else can do. Like I want to do yeah. it like extra, extra than that. You know, I don't want to just be. Yeah. So you have a fascinating but- example because he's like 60 now, but when he was a young man, he was really into crack cocaine. Yeah. And so like, he would wake up in these neighborhoods, like he'd be, he'd have been robbed He'd have no way to get home. Sometimes dealers shot at his car. Like, and he compares now ultra running. And when he tells people he's doing these crazy runs across deserts and stuff, their reaction to him, he says it's the same kind of validation he got when he was buying crack from dealers. And they'd be like, well, you're not going to do that much, are you? <laughs> you know? yeah. It's that sense of like, yes, I am. Yes, watch I me. am. Yeah, you watch me. And like, yeah, he says about, being able to do more than anybody else could and people would like say to him wow you can do so much and he would be like yeah I can yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and he's just yeah. found a more productive you know way of way fueling of that kind, yeah. kind of you know using that drive to fuel a more productive way of life now even though mm-hmm. as, as you, you know ultra runners freely admit it probably is destroying your body but mm-hmm. that's part of parcel of it isn't it yeah yeah well I mean like the drugs are destroying your body as well yeah so it's like either you know you live the life of doing the drugs that you know or you do the life of pushing your body to another extreme but in a sport mm. yeah phenomenal and so you had that from a really young age of wanting to like you know I guess have that validation of um the first one to try everything yeah 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 but then you don't realize you think you're being really daring and breaking new frontiers like because my brother for instance he's really straight and so when I discovered psychedelics as a teenager I'd be thinking he's never gonna know what it's like to um but you don't realize how boring you become really quickly so like most of my 20s and half of my 30s were just spent being a bar fly sitting at a bar talking to the same old people but never actually learning anything about them for some weird reason you know when you have these drinking kind of buddies you don't ask the well for me anyway in England we didn't ask deep questions of each other so you don't ever even learn who you're drinking with no. and you just have this really boring life and then 
you know, maybe there's the odd drama here, like somebody throws a pint glass or something. (laughs) But that's about as exciting as your life gets and you don't realise. So it wasn't until I kind of came out the other side at 34 when I quit drinking drugs for eight years, um, I realised how much I'd been missing out on life. I um, resonate so much with that as others I have lived in the UK. I was there for 10 years. And I tell Mm. people now in Australia because I say, you know, like, there's not a lot to do over there, um, but drink. And you you spend a lot of time in the pub and a lot of time creating your own drama because that's all you've got to be excited about. So everywhere yeah. you go, it's like, oh, my God, have you heard about this? Have you heard about so-and-so from down the road? Have you heard about yeah, totally. anywhere you go? Everyone's in each other's pockets. Everyone's creating yeah. some kind of And if it's not a drama, that's actually a drama. It's like you'll never believe it. I ordered a pushchair and the pushchair came and it wasn't the right one. And it's just like, you know, but that became someone's like absolute like focus of the day is that the wrong push chair came because that they you know it's like we we create this kind of drama because there's nothing really much else going on over yeah there. Um, I mean there and- are interesting people there but oh of small-mindedness and of like oh yeah but I think like it's interesting because when you're over there and you are drinking Um, Because I've been back there not drinking and then had friends say, you know, like, oh, you're so boring now. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, I'm just not fucking off my tits, like, you know, getting up on the table and making everything like, you know, so then I wake up the next day and I've like got a story to tell. Um, (laughs) But it's uh, it's a bit different when you are just like kind of observing, like you say, you know, getting to actually know things about people and observing and being present. It's a very different like a place to be and I know when I was there you know especially being in like my 20s um, I did just yeah I don't I just really was drunk a lot of it a lot of the time drunk and on drugs. I, f- I find the drinking culture is a lot more aggressive there as well like mm-hmm. I don't mean people are gonna wind up in fights although you know that does happen but yeah. it's more aggressive like people drinking harder and faster and yes. like you know, the tray of Sambucas seems more common over there than over here. Um, and just rushing, like, because pubs shut quite early over there, or they did, you know, there'd be that, like, y- you've got to be drinking, like, smashing them back as fast yeah. as possible. Yeah. So, yeah, it was all a bit like an endurance race. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, it's not sunny. You're not going to have a nice beer outside and enjoy the weather sort of thing. Or sit outside a pub and have a chat and a beer. Mm. So you're kind of there's that kind of oppressive element of the weather as well yeah oh 100 like the weather is such a huge thing because that you don't get you know like the good days over there are a lot fewer as well but then even here I found because I just I've always had that drink uh drinking till like I just need a drink till I'm absolutely smashed so mm-hmm. it's like you know one beer I can never just go out for one beer I never just I've never enjoyed a beer in the sun and just been like oh I'm loving this beer in the sun it's always like the sun's out let's get wasted you know Mm. um and I think that that was I mean in the UK for me definitely once I started getting in into the drinking scene like I worked in bars there as well and I you know yeah we would just it was always like finish work and then we would all drink together and then you know it was like finish at five in the morning the next day but at someone's house with kick-ons kind yeah. of thing and then you know do it all again the next day because we just we were surrounded by it it was just such a huge part of our lives over there yeah um I mean for me it's like that's where it became a more singular thing over here was that you know there's a big drinking culture here but 
Um, a lot of people do just go out for a beer and have a beer and, you know, enjoy the sun and go home. Whereas like, I was like, oh no, what's happened? You know, I need to keep going um, yeah. until I'm shit faced. So Still two days with a weekend left. Yes, I know. <laughs> I know. Like how many more hours can I um, use to like put more substance in my body? Like, yeah. Um, yeah. And then like you say, you know, not realizing that the alcohol is actually adding to the depression as well. So it's like, why am I crying? Like, you know, two days after I've had a big bender, um, why yeah. is everything so emotional and and not sort of like the, at the time, not being able to pinpoint it to the fact that, oh, you're actually coming down or. Yeah. Your central nervous system is incredibly depressed right now. Like it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got the fear because your adrenal glands are completely rotted. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. It's all, it all has a knock on effect on mood, yeah. doesn't it? Tell me about, like, you just, I mean, you have a wealth of knowledge around this. Um, you've interviewed lots of people. Um, and a lot of people, I think you said in uh, after your first interview with Charlie, you said that you often found um, that, you know, any interviewee that you had after that was um, would resonate with the idea of looking for this validation. So tell yeah. me a little bit about, like, so what was your story? Um, and what have you what have you learned about that? Like, what what were you looking for? Why were you looking for validation? And, and, and what have you discovered about that? um right validation in in like addictive behavior yeah when I was younger you mean yeah mm. yeah I think also well I did have a there there was some quite traumatic things that happened in childhood and I think this is relevant as well because first of all in my teens I found that really hard to cope with and alcohol just seemed like a friend or you know um it would almost like I'd get this chemical bond with it and it would be it sort of in, it almost impounded my loneliness but it was there for me you know so so there was that but as I got older I also started using it as an excuse for everything you mm. know like it, it wouldn't have served me to quit it wouldn't have served me to cut back I could use it as an excuse for this quite erratic behavior that I had that I couldn't really understand um but also because I was a music journalist when I was a lot younger, it kind of went hand in hand with that whole caricature of the mm. of the music hack, you know, of like falling asleep under your desk and interviewing pissed people, pissed and um, uh, all that kind of legend that goes with it. You know, it's permitted that you can be drunk during the day and go off and interview people and stuff. So <laughs> uh, I really bought into that. So I mean, it really served me this whole. Uh, you know this whole pissed Jenny she's always you know going going pretty hard persona I mm -hmm. thought mm -hmm. <laughs> um and I used these things to hide behind you know the fact that there had been some kind of trauma and I did have this kind of job um and it would yeah like I say it wouldn't have served me to sort myself out um <laughs> yeah. but eventually eventually you know as you get older you just don't want to roll with the punches anymore so when horrible things happen to you because of you know you being wasted or having blackouts or brownouts or whatever it is mm. you know when you're younger it's like okay well life's just a science experiment and this is just another thing mm. it's all experience but when you're older you just think I can't take this anymore so when I got into my 30s <laughs> yeah yeah it just became so depressing and then the older you get as well if you're pissed all the time you start to feel a bit pathetic you know, it's all right when you're in your 20s ricocheting off the walls and doing cartwheels across the venue and all this kind of nonsense. But the older you get, you start to think, maybe especially as a woman, I'm not sure you start to think, God, do I just look like a pathetic old crone? You know, with my elbows on the bar, slumped at the bar. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah it's uh it starts off you seek validation through this kind of extreme behavior and being the nutcase at the gig or whatever it is but then it becomes like ah, oh, slid into pathetic and I didn't notice yeah I get that <laughs> I get so that sorry. yeah I really get that it's like I just I got to a point where I just didn't know like I was, I was like why am I inflicting this pain on myself all the time because I feel so pathetic and sad and when you feel so pathetic and sad and and you know not worth anything you know everything else becomes so much harder as well because you start to just accept such shitty treatment of yourself too from people yeah Um, you know you accept so low you so it's like your bar is so low because you know you feel like you're not worthy of anything and then you know, someone comes along and treats you like you're not worthy of anything, and then you think that that's what you deserve, and you you put up yeah. like put up with so much shit because you feel so shit, and then you feel so shameful because you you know you are that person who's getting older and hasn't really learned from their mistakes and always trying to, but still kind of struggling to yeah. let go and struggling to become like the version of yourself that you want to be. So you're in this kind of like vortex of trying to change, but also still letting go of all those old patterns and then yeah it's, it's a very confusing place to be in yeah and the irony is probably the most abusive relationship you're in is with yourself yeah. um <laughs> yeah. but uh you know I found that you know come sort of late 20s to early 30s I was desperately trying to change I was like well, okay whatever behaviors you've had so far they yeah. haven't worked for you people don't like them don't always understand why not but okay it's not working you've got to do the opposite <laughs> <laughs> but you, you, there's only so much you can do when you're still drinking and taking drugs oh yeah. you know you've, with the best will in the world you know you can see you can seek professional help um you, you can know what you've got to change you've got to have that clean deck in which to really properly do it yeah. so um so yeah I quit for for eight years and it just gave me so much time to really reset really tackle things mm. it, like get try and figure out what it is I enjoyed things things that I enjoyed which of course were almost always things that you enjoyed as a kid yes um, like sport yeah. I never did sport at all but mm. I loved PE at school and like of course running faster than everyone else and yeah, <laughs> doing whatever yeah. it was everyone else so things like that really connected me with all of a sudden you think god I've, I've gone 20 years where I could have been doing sport yeah but I didn't um so now I'm trying to make up for lost time but it's quite interesting just on the, on the note of addiction so loads of people I interviewed for everything harder than else everyone else mm. said to me uh off the record or on the record that they actually had ADHD um and I've been diagnosed with that and uh, there's a gene that we have called DRD2. Mm-hmm. And people who've got ADHD and or people with addiction issues have a faulty version of this gene. So um, basically, you know, it's, it's really hard for you to get the same kind of reward and enjoyment from life because your dopamine levels are really low. Mm. So you're, you're having to go extra hard. You're having to do more things to get that sense of normality in your brain so yeah that's why people go for stimulants for instance or or thrill-seeking behavior um or you know or they're very impulsive uh so so it kind of made a lot of sense so a lot of my interviewees reminded me of of me and my addictive issues and a lot of them did have histories of addiction as well Mm -hmm. i uh (laughs) oh god 
I literally say to my friend, I, I, I haven't been diagnosed ADHD, but I, um, I've had a few friends say to me, have you, have you thought about <laughs> seeing, seeing maybe you've got ADHD? Because I, you know, I read things like, um, you know, we talk to respond, not to hear. And, and I thought, God, I'm trying, I'm trying so hard to hear people. And I'm like, okay, I'm listening, I'm listening, I'm listening. And then I would just be like, oh, oh, that plant needs, I need to cut that leaf off that plant. And then I'd just be like, <laughs> And I'm going, oh, what yeah, is yeah. going on? And I'm really trying because I was like, you know, and especially even on the podcast, I've had to learn um, a lot, like listen to actually hear what you're saying so I can respond to what you're saying rather respond with yeah. what I want to say. Um, but yeah, ADHD, it's so like in the introduction of your book, when you mentioned about that, um, you know, just that imbalance in chemicals, um, I think, yeah, it, it makes so much sense to me because I'm always, always thrill seeking. I'm always wanting, like, you know, I came out of rehab um, and bought a motorbike, you know, because I was like, what am I going to, I need something. Like I yeah, can't just come out of rehab and not have like something that gets the wind you know, going through my hair. Um, (laughs) So I went and got my motorbike license and got a motorbike and, you know, so finding things that actually give me that bit of adrenaline because at that point training wasn't doing enough for me. Now my friends say go and get it, uh, you know, get see if you can get diagnosed and see if you've got ADHD. And I I joke about it now because I'll be doing something and then I'll say, oh, sorry, I just glitched then. I've, it's my ADHD and I'll actually tell myself, call myself ADHD. Even though I haven't had a diagnosis, but I'm bit, I can see a lot of the patterns. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, now. And, and it's so funny because you're in this, like, when you said that, you you know, you, you started to uh, work on yourself around your sort of late 20s, early 30s, and I turned, I turned 34 in June, but I'm in my 33rd year and I've just found that, like, um, all of the things that I'm, learning about is what I'm reading in your book as well so it's a lot of um time that you spend in this one kind of like in these characters but you don't understand them and so it's like I think you know probably but you know I've lived with ADHD my whole life and then felt really misunderstood as well because I was just so um wild and it's like people just expected this like wild side and then drinking and doing drugs you 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 know it's personified so um you know you think about how you are as just in general level where you've got a clear head and you're not on substance and then you know multiply that because even when I'm clean I'm very excitable and very you know quite full-on lots of energy um but then you know you multiply that so much so you're putting out so much more energy as well when you're using substance and it's like your body eventually just goes yeah I can't keep up with this like I don't have yeah, yeah. I don't have all this energy to constantly give because you're just constantly on this high um, squeezing it every last drop every last <laughs> drop and then we wonder why we're so depressed and it's like probably the yeah. name of the next book yeah <laughs> yeah oh my god that would be so amazing <laughs> yeah so but, I mean yeah the like the people in the book right they range from like bare knuckle boxers to bodybuilders to like people do fresh hook suspension and porn stars, but I call them the natural born leg jigglers because without fail, when I met them their or interviewed them on Zoom, whatever it was, yeah, their leg would be going, and so so does mine. Yeah. So I think you know they've they found really productive ways of dealing with this kind of natural agitation or restlessness, and that's really cool. And I know they'll have their critics, like you know whether it's a porn star or a boxer, you'll always get people who why would you do that yourself, but it's better than some alternatives Mm. and it's something you can be proud of you know yeah 
I think when you come to accept it, uh, it's the most freeing experience. Um, it's just accepting that, like, you know, anxiety um, is going to probably be a part of my life. Um, you know, it's, well, it's a part of everyone's life. It's going to be a part of your life rather than trying to eliminate it, work on how you can, like, work with it. Yeah. Yeah, so that's sort of where I'm at as I'm learning how to, like, work with my anxiety and not shame myself for having anxiety or, if you know, if I do have a bad day and I feel depressed or something upsets me, it's like it's okay, like it's not a bad life, it's a bad day, you know, like just those sorts of little affirmations, I guess. But it's yeah. working with working with what I've got. I'm going to probably suffer with, you know, like even my, my own mental health is just going to be a journey that I'm going to be on for the rest of my life rather than trying to be like I don't want to have these things I don't want to be like this going well this is how I am how can I um, harness it instead of yeah shaming you just got to be watchful and agile and and like learn learn the warning signs of when Mm. you know things are starting to slide yeah um and and have these different techniques that you can use and like the only techniques you're taught by health mental health professionals are like meditation breathing mindfulness blah 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 I don't reckon that's for everyone so for you it might be uh right well I'm gonna swing an axe for an hour or whatever I'm not not saying you personally but but for someone else you know it doesn't have to be you have to sit down and like sit with your feelings in fact so I was supposed to be writing this different book before I wrote everything harder than everyone else and it was actually my former psychologist um, said, like we were winding up our time and he went, do you, would you want to help me write this book? Because he was trying to, he told me that I'm what he calls a distractor. Like there are different types of people and the distractors are always trying to distract themselves from emotional pain. Yeah. Um, and I, but he wanted to write a book about that and how he, like we're living in this time of like, era of like, incredible stimuli everywhere like porn Mm. our phone you know social media um and how we're using that to distract from pain and so we were supposed to be working that together and then I wound up thinking but I I like being a distractor and like you know people who come up with these ways of especially inventive ways of distracting themselves like through different sports or like thrill-seeking behaviors other than drugs um I think that's really cool (laughs) so I had to say to him oh, look, um, I might have to get back to you on that. And like, we'll return to it. I'm going to write the complete opposite book. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so amazing. Cause like, yeah, that's so freaking cool. I am. I literally have like, that's where I've got to is this point where I'm like, I fucking like who I am. I like who I am. I like that I'm fucking wild. And I like that I pick up tasks and I teach myself new things all the time. And I like that I get distracted. And I like that I get obsessed with art. And, you know, like over Christmas, I made my clients little pots. um, So I've like got into... Um, plants and so I made my clients I got these like terracotta pots and I painted them all different colors and put different faces on all of them you know made them really cute and then got my succulents that I've been growing and like gave them all hair and I fucking got so obsessed (laughs) with it I was getting home it was like all I wanted to do was like put the new faces on all these different pots and I thought and but a lot of people said to me like god you, you just don't do things by halves and I said no I don't I don't yeah, and I love that about myself I love that I yeah, yeah. get really into something and I've really put effort in and I want to make it really nice and fun and you know and I, I like that about myself and I, I think we kind yeah. of get taught to you know yeah don't don't be too obsessed with things and don't be you know um don't like even my, my friends, my friends who know me really well joke with me because they go, we've said, oh, I'm going to call my little pot making business not a business because I've got all these little 
businesses that I do because I can't yeah. buy halves. And so I said, they said, oh, you're going to sell these pots? I said, no, no, no. I said, I'm not having another business. I've got too many businesses already. And um, and so we said, oh, if I, do call, if I do start it as a business, I'll call it not a business. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not a business pots. Um, so, you know, but I like, like, that's the thing. I've learned to like adapt and accept that these are like the things that I actually really like about myself is that I am creative and I do get really into things. And, you know, yes, I pick up stuff that I don't always finish, but at least I pick it up, you know, at mm. least I try, at least I try and figure out what works for me and I work out what doesn't work for me. And yeah, there's yeah. lots of, um, and I'm like, you know, if I, if I just never even tried, how would I know, you know? Yeah. My old Muay Thai trainer, I was training for two and a half years, really, really solidly for um, an amateur fight. So from training from scratch, I'd never done it before. And I was like 43. Um, so, you know, it was six days a week, it was, it was full on. Um, then as soon as I'd done my amateur fight, I was like, okay, next, what do I do now? What do I do now? Mm-hmm. So I got into like all at the same time, like learning pole, learning harness. And then I'm like, oh yeah, I want to, you know, I want to compete in bodybuilding. And he was like, you know, you're going to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. I thought that's fine. I, 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 you know, life, our lifespan is limited. There's lots I want to learn. Mm-hmm. My main thing is I've got to just find absolute joy in it and it'd be funny um, and, you know, I, I'd see other people who are training at an amateur level in Muay Thai who, who are really, really, who are really, really serious about it. And they are completely like, never see them crack a smile. It's like, got to get the win. Um, and I thought, yeah, that's great. I can really appreciate that. But it's not me. Like, I just want to, whatever I do, really, really enjoy it. And if I ever stop, what's next? You know, mm. move on to the next thing. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it is always about learning, isn't it? Yeah, I love that. And it is, it's a, uh, you know, I, I I honestly think we have all these sayings that are just like so limiting, like, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. It's like, well, fucking, yeah, get fucked. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'd much rather have lots of little skills under my belt than have none, like, or to have mastered one and not anything and enjoy else, it. You know, and not enjoy it. And I think I was the same, you know, I, I went so hard in Strong Woman. I, when I discovered Strong Woman, it was like, oh my God, there was just, so much fat there was so much validation in strong women for me like I was good at it I was a strong female it was early days of the you know strong uh sort yeah. of strength sports powerlifting all that kind of thing and um people just saying yeah. to me all the time you know you're so strong for a woman and and I thought yeah I'm so strong for a woman I'm you know it's one of the strongest women in the gym and right you know and I just I went so hard into it and I, I was the same six days a week I, I loved my training I lived for training I couldn't wait to go to training I couldn't wait to be in the gym and have people go oh my god Karen's here she's lifting we love watching her and lift like she's such a badass when she lifts you know um god there was so much you know, like I mean like behind me here's my whole like little trophy memoir stand oh mine's um, over here mine's yeah, here. oh nice yeah <laughs> and I look at it and everyone's like oh my god amazing amazing and I'm like yeah you know what it's so amazing but it was so I was so into it I was so honed in on it and, I, and even when I didn't enjoy it I did it anyway even when I wasn't looking forward to a comp I did it anyway now you know I was supposed to do a comp I was actually meant to do the compound comp on the weekend and I just wasn't enjoying the training for it and I was like it's it's made me the change in my mind of knowing I have to compete has changed how I feel about my training and I'm not enjoying my training so I actually I'll, I'll wait until I'm training for something that is really fulfilling for me because I just mm. don't want to choose shit that makes me feel like crap these days you know I don't want to do something just because somebody's that's saying oh Karen's competing again like oh my god Karen's the one to watch I don't want that pressure in my life and if I feel that pressure and I'm not enjoying 
the training for it, I'll, I'll say, oh, actually, I'm, I don't think I'm going to do that because it's not bringing me any joy. Um, whereas yeah. when I did the Game of Stones competition, I went into it just loving the training, really enjoying it, went in with no expectations and took out first place with my partner that I did it with. And, um, and I'm like, that's how I want to feel when I'm competing, you know, when I'm training for a comp is that I, as soon as it gets to that point of pressure, that pressure point for me at this point in time, especially being five and a half months clean, I'm very early in my recovery. You know, I don't need to have that pressure on myself. I need to be doing yeah. things that really spark joy in me, like going yeah. back to those things that I did when I was a kid. Like for me, it's it's making cookies and it's um, painting and it's uh, coloring in and doing all of those things. Like sometimes I, as wild as that might sound, to, to some people because they're like but you're you were Australia's strongest woman like you'd rather go and you'd rather sit at home and do a coloring in book than compete and I'm like yes yes I would yes I would yeah, <laughs> yeah. People, just... like you, people like you and me and people who get into drug use um they're obsessed by novelty we need novelty mm. um we need new things all the time to keep mm. us amused and like mm. yeah so if you'd fallen into a rut with strong women and it was just the same thing day in day out and the same mm. faces and the same the same movements then great you found you've now found something a bit different mm. that lights that fire again yeah and also you've got nothing to prove like no. <laughs> you've already proved yourself yeah 100 percent. and also I'm getting older like you know I uh I don't want to be wrecked all the time like I don't want to be um injured and sore and you know and it takes a lot like it takes a lot to be a strong woman competitor at the level that I was at um I'm mm. sure for yourself even doing a um, an amateur fight in Muay Thai like that's that's you know it takes so much dedication and so much of yourself to be there it's like you know eventually you sort of go oh yeah okay but I'm putting all of myself into this one plant you know I'll put it bring it back to plants but it's like you know if we had like you know a plant in the garden we only have this one plant and we're just nurturing and tending to this one thing and then all of yeah. a sudden it's like you look up uh, look up and go oh I've got nothing else going on yeah um you yeah. know my marriage fell apart um my yeah I lost friendships I you know just immersed myself in it and then all of a sudden I looked up and went oh my life my other the rest of my life's all fucking falling apart around me um but at least I've got lifting you know <laughs> yeah it's like I was saying earlier about you know when you first discovered drugs and alcohol it's really exciting and you think yeah. like oh my god yeah blah blah hasn't experienced this insane level of a high that I have yeah. um yeah. but then yeah. very quickly you realize you've become extremely boring and that you just do the same thing all the day all the time talking to the same people yeah. um but you don't yeah. notice that when it's happening no you don't at all um and interesting that you say that too I had you know I said my sister's just had had a baby um and I went to help her she called me and said you know please come she goes come I need help because I'd said you know let me know I'm not just saying it if you need help I'll come stay so she made me she said yep, yep. we need help and I so I, yep what do you need do you need me to pick up stuff on the way yes I need this and this and this that's cool no worries and I'm in the shop getting all these things I thought fuck six months ago I would have been like oh fucking I was going home to get pissed or I was going to this party yeah, yeah, yeah. and I was on my way to go and get smashed with my mates and now I've got to go and pick up a shower stool um you know and I and I yeah. in my head I thought wow six months ago I would have been so fucking selfish and I'm just like yep what do you need okay yep I'll find a place on the way get it go got that got to hers helped her with the baby and she said you know she was just so grateful and I was laying there I had my little nephew on me at three in the morning and I and I 
thought, oh my God, I couldn't have done this six months ago um, with the amount of substance I was doing and how selfish I was. And and I told her in the morning, I said, I had this little moment with him. I got quite emotional and I thought, I'm so glad that I can be here for you, my little little dude, you know, it's on me, it's so cute and tiny. And uh, and she said, do you know what, Karen, six months ago, I wouldn't have asked you to come. Yeah, (laughs) which was probably a little bit of a slap in the face as well, but quite true. But what I need, you know, sometimes we need that. Like we don't realize, we don't realize how yeah. how boring we've got. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, and unreliable. How, why would she want me around when she's had a newborn and she's got all this going yeah. on? And you don't oh, drop it. Yeah, literally. And I like, I probably would have gone there and be like, "You got any beers?" You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. So the fact that she can trust me and I've rebuilt that trust with my sister and our relationship is so good. And I used to think, "Fuck, my sister's so annoying," you know. But it wasn't because she's annoying. It was because I was like not even present I was like calling her up just to tell her and whinge about my problems and then wondering why we didn't have a close relationship you know yeah 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 Yeah. so it was just nice it was nice to know that I've built that trust up and nice to see sort of the other side of things um with her that she actually yeah like go wow yeah six months ago not even would I've been there I wouldn't she wouldn't have asked me or trusted me to go and help her so you do really Mm. see things like kind of come full circle once you remove the substance um and yeah just like even the adrenaline of going there like looking after this newborn you know was like something really exciting for me it gave me like a like yeah. a high like almost like I had runners high <laughs> you know going and looking that, at that first bit. first sort of year year and a half though I mean like you sound like you're nailing it because it can be such a god it can be such a bereft time like a time of grief and things coming up and mm-hmm. um I remember I got to 18 months and I thought I'm on the abyss of depression because I feel like there's no point in life which mm-hmm. sounds weird but I hadn't replaced alcohol with anything positive really mm-hmm. um and so I, I eventually I went to my mate's dad's funeral and I hadn't met him or anything I was meant to support my mate and anyway, mm-hmm. I was listening to the eulogies and they were talking about this guy who as his mobility was taken from him he never gave up he just took up something new took up something new mm-hmm. so like he couldn't do yachting anymore he took up some kind of instrument couldn't do that anymore took up chess couldn't do that anymore he was reading quantum physics on his deathbed mm-hmm. and it, it just kicked me up the ass and I um <laughs> I started this blog where I had to do a new thing every day for a year and it, it was anything from like riding a horse to like mowing my own garden to <laughs> like jumping out of a plane sometimes you know I'd be able to set up something that was more extreme like mm. blowing things up other times it would have to be something that I'd have to hastily do that day but it was the ultimate in distraction oh my god because so every day I'd have to people got really invested in it because like also I'd, I'd been quite an insular introvert but mm. you know I did things like helped helped the local steam train enthusiasts lay down tracks so I had to like hang out with people I'd never ever have met before outside my little pub bubble yeah and it was like mind-altering like the moment I did it day one I can't remember what the day I think me and my friend tattooed each other I think that yeah, was day right. one um it, it changed me yeah like okay, I'm, um, I'm going to take control. I've given my life some meaning. I've got a mission and it just turned everything around. Wow. That's so incredible. I think I had, so I had a shift for myself. Um, 
it was 30. So I'd done 30 days. It was because of lockdown, everything, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on and I had to. I think the difference was is that if I I had to snap in to do something because I was yeah. 30 days in sober, in lockdown, at home, alone, all I could really do was take my dog out. I couldn't train my clients. I couldn't distract myself. So I couldn't find things that would even, you know, distract me from the fact that I was so hating life, not drinking. Um, and mm. so after 30 days, I actually checked into a rehab on my 30th day sober and um, went into rehab. And I think just being in there really kind of, that's what, that was like a jump start for me because I was, you know, I went in and it was a therapeutic rehab. So, you know, we were doing a lot of things like just even like new things. Like, you know, we, I did sound bath for the first time and, you know, we did did do like these mindfulness activities and stuff. But then we also like just dug in in groups into like addiction and, um, you know, and things like that. And we did art therapy and I hadn't done art for so long, you know, like when I was drinking and back on drugs, I... Yeah lost my passion for painting and art and I have always loved art um yeah and now I'm like freehand painting shit on my walls at home and like getting right into yeah it's them. great yeah you know so so doing a lot of that sort of stuff but it's like I think with the rehab that really did like kind of kick me into gear because it gave me it gave me um a, a routine again outside of being like my routine prior to drinking was like you know you get up you walk the dog you go to work you go home and you drink uh, and the weekends is pretty much the same, except that you just drink the whole time. <laughs> um, and we'll yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, and then I suddenly was like in this rehab and I realized that, oh, if I didn't have a job, there's still so many other things that I could be doing in my day um, yeah. other than just going, okay, well, I've walked the dog. I can't go to work. Now I'm just going to sit here and stare at a wall and feel sorry for myself. Um, yeah. I actually was like, oh, I could get my my art set back out. You know, I could color in, I could journal, I could um, just, you know, go like go and do something new, like just go down to somewhere and do something crazy, you know, like um, get a motorbike, like all these kinds of things, you know, yeah. um, that I found were really, um, really helpful. But yeah, like I think um, I was quite fortunate. I have, I had had, um, so for myself, I've had, I've had seven years of sobriety prior as well. Um, mm-hmm. before I relapsed, I had three, and then I had three years of just obliterating myself mentally. Um, but I think because this is maybe also my second attempt. You know what you're doing now. Uh, yeah. And, and the, the, fir- the first time I, oh, the, the first time I didn't look at myself at all, um, going into the rehab and, um, actually going into therapy and realizing that I actually was um, suffering with post-traumatic stress disorder and then having therapy and I was in therapy twice a week there so I was there for 40 days and then just just little things like that realizing that oh and last mm. time I was in sobriety I didn't talk to anyone about it and last time I was in sobriety I, I got into a relationship uh, and, and then I kind of like changed one addiction with another addiction and this time around I was like oh okay I was recognizing things from my last time of sobriety um, and going oh okay So this time around, I'm going to do things differently and actually work on myself and not get straight into a relationship. All those different things, not trying to replace one thing with another. Um, And that's the difference. Maybe like, you know, I just wanted it so much more this time. Yeah. Yeah, I threw absolutely everything at it right from the start. So I went to like smart recovery meetings, AA meetings, outpatient treatment, read every kind of book I could on the topic, uh, had like saw so you know an addiction psychologist um and I, so I did AA for like 18 months I made myself stick at it even though yeah. I, I really hated it because I'm so antisocial but 
you know, if I hadn't gone there, you, I wouldn't have had that message drilled into me because they yeah. can be really harsh, yeah. harsh and true. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have had that message drilled into me like, you've got to take responsibility for your own actions. Stop blaming other people. Stop blaming your parents. Um, and, you know, take a good long, hard look at yourself, really. Yeah, people <laughs> yeah. will talk to you very bluntly in AA. And, um, but, and, but some of the acronyms and the sayings that, you know, have been going around for almost probably a century yeah. at AA, they're true, you know, like there's some real hard-earned wisdom in there. So absolutely, if I hadn't gone there, I would still have been, I'd be what they call a, call a dry drunk, where dry you're still drunk. sort of, you haven't changed your behavior, you haven't changed your viewpoint, you're just and so you still think you're the victim of everything. Mm, yeah. But you're just not drinking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And therefore, you probably think even more of yourself because you're like, well, I'm not drinking. So, um, you know. Yeah. What a legend. Yeah. yeah what a legend. <laughs> but actually, you're still, yeah, you're still all of those things underneath that you haven't actually dealt with. Yeah. You do you feel like you've, like, when you stop drinking or, or taking drugs for the first time, you feel like you've reinvented the wheel. You really oh. do. It's like, oh my God, my mind is blown. I can't believe I'm doing this. Yes. Um, when everyone else isn't suitably like bored or adjusting their um, schedule on things that they would normally do with you to allow for this. It's kind of like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Can you not see this profound change I'm undergoing? Yeah, 100%, 100%. And you, yeah, you do. You feel like, well, they call it the pink cloud, don't they? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, because yeah. I, I'm in, an, I'm in uh, Narcotics Anonymous. Um, so I, I go to my meetings, I'm still going to meetings. And, and same sort of thing, like, you know, things that are repeated and, you know, you hear these things all the time and, you know, um, the suggested things and, you know, doing the steps and, and, and I thought, oh, yeah, like, you know, I'm doing the steps like in my head, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then eventually I'd be like, oh, well, maybe I should get a sponsor. You know, maybe I should reach out and talk to someone. And one day a lady shared and I said, oh, I've really resonated with her share. And I saw so I messaged her and I said, oh, I really resonated with your share. And, and then she said, have you got a sponsor? And I said, no. And she goes, okay, I'll be a sponsor if you want me to. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. And then I thought, oh my God, yeah, I'm doing it now. But, and I thought, fuck, I wish I'd done this at the start, but it just, you know, yeah. sometimes it does. It's that drilling in of little things and that, you know, that keep coming back, keep coming back. And then every time I go back, you know, I might get one little nugget of something that helps me. And then, um, yeah, then I'm able to kind of like move forward with it. And then I go, oh, okay, now I can see what this person was saying when they said that. And it all clicks yeah. in together and, it, and it, it makes more sense in my brain. But yeah, we really are. We're, we're very prideful um, species, especially when we go in there with, you know, our lives are kind of in tatters, but we still think we're like, fuck, I'm the mutts nuts, like, because <laughs> I'm Well, people will come up to you like really intensely. Like people will come up to you and go, like grab your hands and go You're just like me you know and they talk about we and I'd be thinking get back off yeah like literally like, like you know me You're not, yeah I'm not like you my sponsor because I saw this woman roll her eyes during someone else's share and I thought yeah I'm gonna choose you as my sponsor <laughs> it just yeah. shows you the kind of shitty attitudes I had when I went in yeah <laughs> yeah it's so true it's so true um and it is it's a journey everyone like anyone in it who's his struggle with being an addiction it's a journey you have to go on like yourself and I think you know they, they always talk about the people who have the success are the ones who do the things that are suggested um and it's hard because you have to really put your ego aside to do those things to do the steps mm. is like a whole another ball game you know I was sort of on step four um, in this program and, I, and and yeah like to do the steps and to actually acknowledge like I have resentments for people but what was my part to play <laughs> that's resentment yeah. and I'm going 
I fucking didn't do anything. That guy treated me like absolute shit. I didn't deserve that. Oh, blah, 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 blah. I'm not doing the steps. And I'm like, I'm going to wash the car. <laughs> you know? Do you know what I found though? Like, that, so I can't remember if it was step four, step seven, or whatever, where you, where you sort of make amends to people yeah. and you approach them, but you're not allowed to explain your behavior or mm. justify it. Mm. I actually found at first, I was like, oh, that's going to be really difficult. But I actually found people have this natural tendency to play devil's advocate. So if you mm-hmm. say to someone, I'm really sorry, I behaved like in this awful way I did this and this and you don't add the because I or because you mm-hmm. they rush in and do it themselves <laughs> they're like mm-hmm. oh no but you were you know you were this and that and oh I had my part to play I was like oh this actually works quite well <laughs> it's actually the most humbling experience isn't it making amends um yeah. when I was um in this in the thick of the last three years Oh, like I, I really wasn't in my right mind. And you you just want to tell people, like, I really wasn't in my right mind. I'm sorry that I did this. Yeah. Thing. When I, when you're sitting here now and you go, oh, my God, I really wasn't in my right mind. I thought I was, you know, I thought I was like, oh, fucking whatever. Uh, you know, I had all these sponsors from, you know, I was prior to me relapsing. I had all these sponsors and I was, you know, going really well and I was really involved. And Wait, are you talking about sponsors as an athlete? Sponsors as an athlete. Oh, okay. So we've, okay, different kind of sponsors. Oh, different kind of sponsors. Sorry. Thank you for clarifying. (laughs) Um, So no, when I was an athlete, I had sponsors who would sponsor me with supplements or clothes or with equipment. And, um, and when I went downhill, I just, they were so good to me and I just wrote them off. I didn't contact anyone. I didn't tell them that I was struggling. Like I, you know, I had at times that I'm going to come off social media for a bit. I'm just having a bit of a hard time. But I, I basically just dropped them like out of nowhere, stopped promoting their codes, didn't tell them that I wasn't going to do that anymore. Just mm. really fucking selfish behavior, you know. And um, and I saw one of my old sponsors at the comp on the weekend and I was, as my friend was there and he walked in and I said, oh, my God. I said, I've got to make an amends with this guy. And, and he goes, go and do it now. And I said, I was like, oh, my God, oh, no. But I did exactly what you just said. I went to him and I said, hey, I need to apologise. I said, I'm so sorry that I didn't tell you anything. And he goes, Karen, it's fine. He goes, you're in a really bad place. And I was like, oh, you noticed that, did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and he goes, it's fine. You're in a really bad place. He's like, we all have shit times. And I was like, Thank you so much. I said, because honestly, it's not who it's not who, how I do things. I said, and I'm really embarrassed at myself, but I'm really sorry. And he mm. was like, don't even worry about it. He goes like, it is so fine. And I was like, oh, wow. I was like, that was yeah. I, and I was just like this whole weight that I've been carrying around for so long just was gone. You're taught to do that in 12 step. And I know, and you know, 12, I know it's got its critics, like people saying, oh, you don't you're only doing it for a step, but like if if people did that more often in in their general lives mm. um like apologize without making excuses and justifications and trying to explain yourself just mm. apologize where it's due mm. you know that would go a long way it would it would it would make the world a really good place there's a lot of good things in there you know even um when i now now i have my my sponsor so now I have an NA sponsor so yeah okay. <laughs> I don't have 
I'm not looking for sponsors for anything else, um, just sponsors for my recovery. So, um, but my, um, my sponsor, you know, she was saying how, you know, even with the questions and the way that they're designed, they really are designed in a way to challenge you and to put you in these places that feel really uncomfortable because, you know, when we're, we get really comfortable in our, in our heads, when we're, you know, think that we know it all and we, we can do everything. And and this is designed to shake it up and make you feel a bit uncomfortable and make you challenge yourself. And then and then you start to feel like the more that I make amends, the less weight I'm carrying. And yep. yeah, and not going in with those excuses, not going in saying, yeah, well, I was fucked, so you need to forgive me. Like that's yeah, not yeah. the right way to do it all. Yeah. Sorry, anyway. Driver of addictive. Pardon, say that Sorry, again. the biggest driver of addictive behavior, the biggest driver is shame. Oh, yeah. So if you're still carrying around shame for anything, and we can carry it around from things like dating back to when we were kids, mm. you know, where we shouldn't have to feel any shame. But and then it just compounds and accumulates, you mm. know, and we shame, we feel ashamed about this thing we did last week. And it just becomes this massive burden. Mm. And I think it's really hard to be to become sober if you don't tackle that shame. Because um, it's it's the driving force behind it all, behind yeah. that addictive behavior. I often feel shame in relationships because I hadn't dealt with a lot of my stuff. So, you know, and then it's, they say that that's one of the biggest um, reasons that people, you know, will relapse and not get to work on themselves because they'll get to this point, think, oh my God, I'm doing so amazing, get in a relationship, the relationship falls apart and then they're suddenly like, oh, shame again. So it's like, oh, well, Mm. I might as well just fucking drink. I might as well just fucking take these Mm. drugs. I might, you know, and so we just go back into that cycle. So it's like eliminating those things that can be like serious triggers and then working on the inner stuff um, and then being able yeah. to tackle those other things when you've been able to start putting a bit of a stronger, a bit more of a stronger foundation in place so that you're not as easily triggered by those shame spirals. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's fascinating. I'm in like this fascinating space at the moment where my brain's just like <laughs> every day my brain's growing bigger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right, so. Um, in my first year of not drinking, I, I wrote 100,000 words of like all these revelations and like um, oh. things I was learning in meetings and things I was figuring out for myself. And it became what's called the vomit draft of this book I wrote later. So the vomit draft is, you know, as you can imagine, you're just getting yeah. it all out. Purging it. I ended up not really, yeah, purging it. I ended up not really using any of it because I returned to the book and wrote it 10 years later with some clarity about that whole era like you don't want to be writing about something as it's still happening or turn into a complete mess but women of substances was written 10 years later having had like all that time to process all that early sobriety kind of wisdom all the stuff that you're hearing and make more sense of it and make it into hopefully some actual good storytelling that people can enjoy as well articulating it like differently I've yeah. found yeah definitely I yeah I can get that word vomit like that yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like you know even in the start of my podcast um when I started all things to do I was very much word vomit just like blah, blah, blah. Yeah. and then I've started been able to sort of bring it back and rein it in and actually have some clarity you know and then like when I went through this I went through this really toxic relationship and um and I I just purged, I purged. I wanted to talk about it all the time, not necessarily on the podcast, but with my friends, you know, I just wanted to, I just purged until I just couldn't talk about it anymore. 
Um, And, you know, I wrote about it and I wrote about it and I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to write this book and I'm going to put this book out there. And actually I did. I wrote this book of poetry, kind of like summarising being in this quite toxic relationship. And and then, you know, now I look at it and I go, oh, my God, I'll just leave that on the shelf, you know. Yeah, they say say write from the scar and not from the wound. Because if you write from the wound, it's a mess. It's so (laughs) um, beautiful. By leaving it for you know, a decade as well, by the time I came to write the book, I could actually, it's a really real research heavy book. So I interviewed like 30 neuroscientists, clinicians, psychologists, researchers, I crunched 300 academic papers on addiction wow. and like wrote about them in the book with my own story. And if I'd gone to these people when I was like, you know, three months sober, they would have been thinking that was the loose cannon liable to go off in their hands, you know? Yeah. But yeah. to be able to go, no, this is like 10 years in the past. Yeah. And um, I'm approaching it with a more sort of clinical view. Yeah. It actually works. It's amazing. It's so amazing. And I still think to myself now, like I'm like the clarity, I'll probably listen back on my podcast one time, you know, at some point in my life yeah. and go, holy shit, I was fucking messing with that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, um, and seeing the times where I've gone messy and tried to clean myself and then, you know, relapsing. Like I just, because I constantly was like, it was mini relapses, I would say, because I'd be like, oh, my God, I've really like made a mess here and not drink for a week. But that was a long time for me, you know. Um, Yeah. (laughs) um, And then I would do something and then I would record a podcast thinking I'm in a really good place. And then next minute I'm, you know, on a bender for the next week. And anyway, you know, but I'll listen back to it one day and be like, wow, okay, I can see the the transformation happening and possibly even write a book myself one day yeah very interesting I love 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 that right from the scar and not from the wound because I can really see you know when I did write this poetry book I was so wounded I was a very wounded little deer um and I wanted revenge (laughs) you know yeah that's that's another thing um, someone made this pretty funny tweet and it was like artists only produce art for one of two reasons revenge or horniness <laughs> or sometimes it can be both you, know. yeah. <laughs> you can really tell like as a consumer of books or or whatever it is poetry you can tell when someone's writing for revenge and it, it doesn't it makes them an unreliable narrator like absolutely it makes me think as a reader I don't know if I can trust your opinion here I'm quite mm-hmm. keen to know the other person's side of the story now yeah you know? yeah and that's the thing now I've like I've let go of so much of that stuff like I've just let go. I just let go. I had this moment where I was just like, fucking let it go. And even that, just for me, it was like, yeah, I'm, I really was quite happy with like, you know, this is what I felt, but then also taking that responsibility of how I was showing up because I was showing up in quite a trauma, trauma state, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and quite needy and all those sorts of things and going, oh, okay, yeah, that's not really attractive. I'm not attracted to that. Why would someone else be attracted to that? And really being yeah. able to like unpack it and go, yeah, like that was what I was feeling at the time. And I was really hurt, you know, like, but, but were my wounds justifiable in that time? Like, you know, I've, I've been able to put some bandaging on it and actually see it from both sides and go, you know what? I really wasn't showing up as the most amazing partner. Mm-hmm. So that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and just I don't know. It's just retros- like retrospect hindsight. Like you know, we look at it, look back on it, and it's like, oh yeah, give it some time before. And it's even like people say, you know, give it a bit of time before you respond to something. You know, if you're upset or you're angry, yeah. you know, just give it a minute. And that's like it's yeah. because of those things. Because when you actually sit down with it 
and you can have a proper conversation, usually the outcome is so much better anyway. That's something I learned to do when I went to AA, actually. Like I learned, it sounds stupid, but when I went to AA, I learned not to respond to emails immediately, like Mm -hmm. in a knee-jerk fashion, or do that fucking awful thing, which I hate when people do now, where you copy other people in. I was terrible at that. Oh, I know. Passive aggressive aggressive. bullshit. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. I just, so much of that stuff, I'm like, even when I go now and something has like, you know, it is that little like, I love that. I've written it down right on the scarf up in the room. But it's like when you're like, oh, that pinched, that hurt. I'm going to, I'm going to get my sass on now and like really give it back to you. (laughs) It's like, and then I just I'm actually going to type as fast as I can and do it as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm (laughs) going, and now I can just, you know, with things like that, even if I think, oh, is that person being facetious? Is that person being, you know, and I'm like, who cares? Who who gives a shit? And for a long time, even when I got sober, I was almost like, um, it was almost like every time I got a message, Every time I got a message on my phone or, or an email or something, I'd almost be like waiting for the for the trigger, like the bad news. I'd be like, oh, I'm going to open this message and they're going to say, hey, Karen, sorry, I fucked up. I've done this thing. Or why yeah. haven't you done this? Or what? why haven't you, you know, followed yeah. through with something that you said you were going to do? Or like I was going to be an attack. I was waiting for an attack. Mm. And then I suddenly realised that why am I always waiting for an attack? And why am I always reading messages kind of- from a state of attack? ingrained victimhood that we can yes yeah also if you've experienced things like trauma early on then you have this kind of nature of catastrophizing things and being hypervigilant (laughs) yes and i and i'm realizing that now too that it's like not everyone's out to attack you sometimes Mm. you know someone might come at it from a different tone than you might but not everyone's out to attack you Thank you so much. I know we've gone on a little bit of a gone on a little bit of a chat talking about our own journeys and our own experiences and what happens in the yeah. Brain. And I and yeah. I lo- I love that because I know so many people listening. Like especially with my first podcast that I put out in this season three, a lot of people messaged and really resonated with that. So I'm just thank you so much for sharing and just being another person to want to you know put this energy out into the world and you know just being able to like trust yourself and 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 learn from your experience but you know actually learn from other people's experiences as well and what other people do to harness their I guess their adrenaline seeking mm-hmm. this book is so phenomenal thank you thank you I, I hope it makes people feel connected and like you know something that maybe they thought was kind of flawed isn't and that there's there's plenty of like positives to be found in um in being a bit extra yes be I I love it like the more extra the better I just find the more when I'm being my extra 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 self um I feel so good in my life and it's like when I'm putting myself in a box and trying to be something that I'm just absolutely not um that's when I Mm. feel the most afraid of life you know I feel in in my most fearful position when I'm actually just being vulnerable and being my vulnerable extra out there self life makes so much sense yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, as we wrap it up, thank you. I'm honestly, I'm so humbled. I'm so grateful to have had you on today. I could just talk to you for hours. <laughs> um, but uh, what would you like as a leaving message? Like, what do you want to just like put out there um, for those who are listening? Like your last words of wisdom. Oh shit! Words of wisdom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, 
I, I I would just say that I think it's really important to find the joy in things. Um, you know, you can be you can be good at something and sometimes lose yourself in that and forget to actually have fun and connect with people and find enjoyment in it. And you can also then run the risk of if you can't do that thing anymore, you lose your sense of identity. So it's so important to um, you know, spread yourself a little wider, find a whole bunch of things you enjoy and, and just go for the, the fun aspects as well. Yeah. Amazing. Oh my God. Thank that you. That's so very much. off the cuff. <laughs> no, I love that. I love that. Thank you so much. I'd like, I can talk, I could even just go on another tangent about that. And, oh, <laughs> thank you. No, that is amazing. Um, thank you so much for this book. So Jenny Valentish, everything harder than everyone else it's amazing it's um why some of us push our bodies to extremes and there are so many interviews in here so um jenny has interviewed endurance athletes we've got performance artists bodybuilders bdsm belts and iron porn stars uh wrestlers fighters um and retirement and reinvention so uh those are the chapters in the book and and um, i will let you know how i go when i finish and then i'll just <laughs> yeah that'd be great um, so congratulations again um and where can we find you? Uh, I mainly just stay on Instagram. So it's um, Jenny Valentish underscore public. And you spell that like it sounds V-A-L-E-N-T-I-S-H. And yeah, I love to, I like post readings of me reading from the book there and post me faffing around trying to do some Muay Thai moves and doing pole and generally making a fool of myself. But um you're amazing. enjoying myself greatly <laughs> you're amazing you're amazing thank you thank you thanks for being an inspiration for all of us who want to be more of ourselves um and thank you so much for coming on the podcast and i can't wait to see what comes for you thanks karen oh thank you so much jenny and thank you everybody for listening and we'll catch you next time